I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Each week, it seems yet another list of ingredients for city success is published. Charles Ledbetter believes empathy should be right at the top of these lists of ingredients. Charles is a leading authority on innovation and creativity. Based in London, he has advised companies, cities, and governments around the world on innovation strategy. Among the books he has authored on the topic is We Think, The Power of Mass Creativity, which charts the rise of mass participatory approaches to innovation. Charlie, you've compared London to an airliner being rebuilt by its passengers mid-flight. Why? Well, because London operates at very large scale. It's a huge city. Um, It needs really good systems to work, just as an airliner does. Um, But it also needs everyone to get on and to collaborate in the remaking of the city. And so it's not starting from scratch either. It has a lot of, um, you know, quite old systems. So it's a process of remaking, not inventing from scratch. Uh, And it's a constant process. And you're doing it as the city is moving along at, you know, increasingly quite a rate of development, growth, trade, movement of people, so on and so forth. And none of that can be interrupted whilst you bring in new transport systems or you create new cycle lanes or you build new buildings and so on and so forth. Well, that's quite a trick. <laughs> you you cite London's ability to be self-governing at scale as key to its success. And, and you say that ability rests on two key ingredients that you've just foreshadowed, big systems and the ability for everyone to get on uh, that you call systems and empathy. Talk about those ingredients and why they matter. So um, cities, uh, any really good place to live where you're living in a city needs systems because we're living together at scale. So you need systems to bring in energy, food, raw materials and to take away waste. And you need um, other kinds of systems like communication systems and legal systems to make sure that you know, people follow rules and life isn't just a free-for-all and so on and so forth. So when we're living in cities, we're, we're often living dependent on systems. And every day in cities, we touch things, we flick on a switch, we use our cash point, we go to the shop to get our latte, we drive, whatever it is. We, we, we rely on systems to support us. But cities which are too dependent on systems can be or the systems are too big or too domineering can become as a result rather mechanistic and cold and so the other thing that's really critical about cities is they're places where you meet strangers they're places where you come into contact with other people and what makes a city really exciting is the presence of other people who are different from you who will cook different food or create different culture or come up with different ideas and so to make a city really come to life, you need a way for people to be in contact with one another, to access and to enjoy one another's company. And that's why you need this empathy thing of people wanting to understand one another and connect with one another and reach across um, divides that might otherwise cut them off. It's not surprising to hear you talk about 
the need for systems for energy and transportation, waste, water, housing. I'm not surprised that that makes your list of essential ingredients for a successful city. But empathy, that's a surprise when you describe it and describe the reason for it. That makes sense. But how do I make more empathy? Well, I think if empathy is the ability to sort of almost step inside the head of someone else, if only momentarily, to see the world from their point of view and to respond to that insight that you get, then actually, you know, we use empathy the whole time in cities. You you use empathy just when you're walking down the street because you're adjusting to what other people are doing. You use empathy when you're selling to someone and you're trying to understand what they want or you're trying to encourage them to buy something that you've got. So empathy is like an everyday process. But in cities, I think I'd stress two sorts of things. One is that empathy is often what cities rely on in times of crisis. So in London, we have a kind of urban myth about London, which is not a myth. It's kind of deeply rooted in its culture, which is this is a city that stood together during the Blitz, during the Second World War. And you know what? When there were bombs on 7-7, it was a city that stood together again then. And even when there were riots a year ahead of the Olympics, it was a city that stood together then. And so there's a sense in which empathy is what gets you through crisis, because in crisis you can turn to other people and you can rely upon them. Even if things are breaking down, you can rely upon your fellow citizens. So if you like, that's a sort of negative empathy or an empathy out of crisis. And I think in the States, for instance, you might think that in a city like Detroit, there's been a sort of empathy response in Detroit, that people kind of, you know, in crisis come together. But the other side of empathy is a kind of generative thing. And that's cities need it because you need people to come together with different ideas to generate excitement, to generate culture, particularly for innovation, which is the driving force of our cities now. And where do you see that? You see it in places like um, in, in London, in Shoreditch, in Soho, places which are walkable, which have vibrant street scenes, which have great coffee and great cafes, which have culture that brings people together and where there's a sort of unfolding sense of people kind of bumping into one another. And so if cities are going to rely on innovation, innovation relies on bringing together different people with different ideas. For that, you need a city that's almost like an empathy machine. You need ways to bring people together. Charlie, when you talk about um, walkable places where people can get their coffee, where people bump into people who aren't uh, like themselves or they are strangers, some people would say, well, you've just described gentrification. You've just described actually very people who are very like-minded, who uh, like one another, uh, and you've ma- you're making places for them to come together. What's your response to that? Well, there is a real danger of that, of course, that, uh, you know, one of the things that happens in uh, cities is that you get these kind of enclaves of kind of hipsters with lattes and bikes and trendy jobs. And, you know, people think that that's the city. And what really I think matters about this is two things for me anyway, is two things. One is that cities have to be Uh, empathetic at a level of diversity and scale which includes everyone and it it needs to be 
fair and socially inclusive. And so it, it needs to operate in London, say, not just in the central areas in Covent Garden, Shoreditch and um, what have you, but it needs to operate if you're a family living on uh, the outer edge of the city where you equally need culture, you need good public spaces, you need um, opportunities to be able to walk to where you drop your kids off at school and shop. So it's uh, one of the challenges, I think, for cities is how to combine these things for all to make them fair and open to all people of all talents. That's the real challenge, not just to create trendy neighbourhoods, which are great places if you're young and, and creative. You created a framework for thinking about the relationship between systems and empathy with the penultimate quadrant being high systems, high empathy. And you use the London um, Olympics as your example of the delivery of that, that high empathy, high systems. What was it about the Olympics that made it deliver so well on both? First of all, we couldn't quite believe that we made it happen because the systems in London often are sort of a creaking point. You know, they're just about breaking down the whole time. And so the first thing that really surprised us was that the systems all worked. It got, you know, everything got built ahead of time. When it opened, it worked. I remember going to the Paralympics and coming out of the stadium, thousands and thousands of people heading for the trains and thinking, this is going to take hours. I know it's going to take hours because... There's no way we will have been able to do this well and properly. Actually, it took 10 minutes. And so it worked because the systems to get people there, the set stadia, um, everything around it, all of that worked. And so there was no frustration. There, were, there, were, there was no one saying, oh, this isn't working, so on and so forth. But the real triumph of it was that because the systems worked, all these people came together from all over the world, and you couldn't tell, you know, rich or poor, um, they mixed completely freely. Um, and the key to that, that set the tone was the, the games ambassadors, the games makers, who kind of created this sort of, sort of vibrant celebratory sense of the city. And so that was the reason why London felt so good um, for that period and so good about itself you know, for you know, quite a long time afterwards, was this sense that we had pulled off this trick, that we'd made it work, but we'd also created an atmosphere and environment which everyone felt they could mingle and join in and have a great time. And I suppose my work on London was inspired by that and, and, and the thought, well, how could you make that kind of combination work all of the time? for everyone, not just on special occasions. And you concluded? Well, I concluded that you definitely, that London needs to think hard um, about future systems. Um, it cannot neglect those, and it needs to do so in an intelligent way. And so the city will certainly need um, to retrofit and renew transport systems, um, it needs almost a more systematic approach to housing because housing is the biggest, hottest issue in the city. There isn't enough of it that's affordable. And some of that is to do with the fact we don't approach it in a systematic enough way. We'll need new waste systems. That's for absolutely for sure. We'll need new energy systems. 
And there's, uh, I mean, just look at another thing. All cities um, are synonymous with health systems. They're synonymous with big hospitals. Where do you find the best hospitals in cities? All cities are going to need new health systems because the health challenges of cities are changing with an older population, long-term disease, so on and so forth. So there's a big agenda on systems and city leaders need to mobilise the political will and resources to address those issues. But if you address those and then you build big, inhospitable and inhumane systems that sort of dominate the city too much, then you'll you'll lose what brings cities to life. So you need also to invest in culture, in food, in entrepreneurship, in the civic realm, in public space, so that people can come out and feel as if they really enjoy the city and the city comes to life. One of the things we're finding in the U.S. today is that sometimes it's very hard to build public will to invest in the things you just described. Do you see that in the U.K.? And if so, what are you doing about it? The answer is yes, because there are often um, there are often uh, forces opposed to those things. And so, for instance, the big thing about London at the moment is uh, where should we have a new airport? Should we have a new airport? Should we just have a new runway? And the whole debate rumbles on and it's it's very difficult to address. Meanwhile, you know, that that sense of connectivity to the wider world is absolutely vital to London and other places, which are probably in a way more authoritarian or maybe there's a more greater consensus, just make decisions. Certainly you see that in, in Asia. But the key thing I think is that in London, we have just enough central capacity to address some of the bigger, more strategic issues, but we have enough local governance and enough self-governance to maintain the diversity of the city. And that balance is very important and delicate because if you had not enough central leadership through the mayor, um, you wouldn't have enough of the strategic stuff if you had not enough local, you'd have uh, you wouldn't have the kind of diversity. The big challenge going forward for London is going to be about getting that right. And I think the trend in the UK is definitely going to be towards more city devolution of um, budgets for education, welfare, training, the whole sort of talent and human capital agenda, as well as some other budgets. And actually, what's happened in the UK is that because of London's success and for a whole host of other shorter term political reasons, um, the city of Manchester and its neighbouring cities, of which there are about eight, have all come together to create a an agenda for their cities. And they have been given much greater autonomy than London and much greater responsibility to address those agendas. Because what's happened in Manchester is that um, the city has been regenerated. It's got some fantastic new buildings. There's a real sense of life about it. But many of the deeper issues around welfare dependency, poor educational outcomes, talent drain, all of that hasn't been addressed. And that's what they're going to hopefully address by getting more autonomy over the, all those issues. Mm -hmm. You talked about the mixing of people as fundamental to innovation and innovation is fundamental to the success of cities. You've written for years about the need to create platforms to support the ability of 
all people to be creative. And you've put a great deal of emphasis on all people, inclusion. How do you create such platforms at a city level and sort of, I think, sort of work against the 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 trend today of people being more segregated, particularly economically segregated, than missing. Let me just say a huge gender four things. The first is you can't have an integrated city unless people can move around. And so transport is absolutely vital to connect people to jobs from where they live. So you know, that's a really straightforward thing. The second thing is, actually, if you drive people of modest incomes out of the centre of the city, because it's only a place for rich people to live, um, you create a double problem. Let me just give you one example of what's happening in London. London has um, six huge teaching hospitals, the centre of, you know, the best expertise in Britain in many fields. Within five years, no nurse is going to be able to live within two hours of those hospitals because housing prices are going through the roof. So what that means is actually the hospitals are going to have to go into the housing business because to protect housing that's affordable close to the hospitals, they're going to have to think about what their role is as property investors. So the whole housing agenda is absolutely central. The third thing is... We cannot afford poor education systems, but we also cannot afford education systems that don't connect people to work. And in London, what's absolutely staggering, we've had this huge growth in a kind of high-tech startup culture in East London, a bit like Brooklyn, but there is absolutely no connection between that and the local schools. The companies would say they'd like to do it. They don't know how. The schools would like to connect. But there's no way that local kids, Bengali kids in those schools, are ever going to get a job in the software industry. And that's, I think, is a global problem to do with high-tech clusters in cities, is that they are largely disconnected from education systems. And the fourth and final thing is you need to properly invest in cultural expression of diversity. And I think that there, I, I would say that the US is, is in many ways better than the UK. There's, if you go to a city like New York, there's much more public expression of diverse culture than there is in, in the UK, where it's still, still pretty much a sort of a sense of a modern British English white culture is the dominant thing. So you need that as well. For me, in a way, the, the sort of last 10, 15 years, the big agenda is can cities save themselves, reversing years of decline, regenerating themselves through, you know, the sort of talent technology tolerance, um, attracting knowledge workers agenda. That has often worked, but it has brought with it a cost of inequality. And the future agenda for many cities is going to be about fairness, inclusion and growth and how do you generate fair growth not just growth, which then feeds inequality. Charlie, thanks so much for being with us on Night Cities. Thank you. Charles Ledbeater is a leading authority on innovation and creativity. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.